So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today I'm excited to be joined by Olufemi Taiwo, who is an assistant professor of philosophy at Georgetown. Uh, welcome to the show, Olufemi. Thanks for having me. We are going to be talking about the term, the theory, racial capitalism today. And I think maybe the best place to start would be with Eric Williams and his 1944 classic, Capitalism and Slavery. Could you talk a bit about who Williams was and what the Williams thesis was? Yeah. Um, so Eric Williams is actually um, a very interesting historical figure um, and a very interesting intellectual figure because you could really pretty closely compare the extent to which he was an important political figure with the extent to which he was an important intellectual figure, um, which isn't usually the case, right? Usually somebody's either a scholar off in a university somewhere or they're in politics, um, but Eric Williams was both. So Eric Williams was one of the first black people to get a DPhil from Oxford University, and he got his doctorate in history, I believe, and the um, work that he produced to get that doctorate is the first draft, you could say, of Capitalism and Slavery, the 1944 book, which discusses the role of slavery and the transatlantic slave trade in particular in the rise of the modern world. Um, and I think it's important to say the modern world. The fact that we have a world economy, the fact that we have a global system of politics, multinational institutions like the United Nations, that all comes out of this same period and from the same forces that Eric Williams is talking about. Um, so Capitalism and Slavery is an incredibly important book. He went on to become Prime Minister of Trinidad and Tobago, where he's from. Um, important guy. And then his fellow Trinidadian, the sociologist Oliver Cox, builds on his work, right? Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Both of them, in different ways, highlight what they take to be the intimate, functional relationship between capitalism and racism, although they have, I think, importantly, different takes on the nature of that relationship. They both think there's some kind of fundamental connection there. Well, what, what are the differences in their, in their view? So one of the differences in their views is just the way that they go about making the point. So Oliver Cox gave a sort of um, social comparison between uh, the caste structure that is that that structures large parts of society in South Asia and class and race, which are things that get built up over the centuries that Eric Williams is also talking about. But Eric Williams focuses on the rise of the British Empire and its connection to slavery. So it's less comparative and more just telling one developed story. But in terms of argument, the major difference, I don't know that they necessarily would disagree with each other, but the major difference in what they say is that Oliver Cox describes racial antagonism as a sort of fundamental aspect of how capitalism works. Um, and I'm not sure that Eric Williams would necessarily disagree with that or have to disagree with that on the basis of what he says. Um, but you can tell a different story about what the relationship is if you do it the way Williams does, which is sort of a chronological view. So it's not as though 
race is just something that grew within capitalism to sustain capitalism. But for Eric Williams, it's actually the other way around. Um, you had the slave trade. The slave trade produced racism. And the combination of the slave trade and the difference that it made to world politics um, with racism is actually what produced capitalism. So capitalism was caused by the slave trade and associated racism and associated kind of political consequences, which is an interesting reversal of the way people think of things now, where race is part of the story is why, of why capitalism sticks around. That might be true, but race is the origin story of capitalism, if you agree with Williams. Yeah, I want to come back to, to Williams in a sec. I, this is an aside, but I was thinking about, you know, Williams and then Cox and then, of course, C.L.R. James. And I don't know if you have any idea what is going on in, in Trinidad in the 20th century, but do you know why so many brilliant thinkers are coming out of this relatively s small place? I don't know. We need to think about, you know, there's, the, there's a whole association of Caribbean philosophy which just is a testament to how much genius came out of that region of the world and how much political genius came out of that region of the world. You know, um, you listed a bunch of good names we could add, you know, we could add Fanon, right? Who's Martinican. There are just so many thinkers, um, and Daye. There are so many people who were responding to something in the Caribbean. I would really love to talk to a historian about this and get their perspective on it. I think the best guess that I would venture is to just think about who lives in the Caribbean, right? So you have large mixed cultures with generations and generations of influence from South Asia, right? There's a huge Indian diaspora in the Caribbean. You have centuries and centuries of you know, different nationalities of European people. Throughout the slave trade, it's not as though there was one shipment of captured Africans and then people just stayed generationally on the island. But there was a constant influx to Brazil in South America, a number of the other South American countries, and to the Caribbean of new generations of people who were responding not only to the developments in the Caribbean, but also to the developments on the African continent that they had been abducted from. And coming with them are new ideas. Uh, Manuel Barcia also pays attention to, who's a historian, also pays attention to new forms of warfare and war and tactics of warfare that were coming as new people came in. And so I think just for a long time in the Caribbean, you probably had a very vibrant political culture. And as the Second World War opened up possibilities for decolonization, that just exploded. That would be my guess. Um, but as I said, I'd love to talk to someone who knows more. Yeah, yeah me, me too. I mean, but that sounds like, a, I mean, that thesis makes sense. To get back to Williams, Williams' thesis, is that a thesis that, that makes sense to you? Do you agree with him? Yeah, I think the broad strokes of it are right. When Williams advanced this thesis in Capitalism and Slavery, when he ex explained that he thought slavery, the slave trade, and the politics that came out of it produced the Industrial Revolution and produced capitalism and produced the world as we know it, 
he got an immediate huge backlash um, for decades. Many people from many different disciplines, many of them uh, historians, especially economic historians, might straddle the line between economics and history. Um, a lot of people just did their best to throw dirt on his analysis and try to raise points against it. And you can see why, right? It goes against many of the preconceived notions that we have about who and what is important, especially if you thought that um, enlightenment values and liberal ideology was important to the creation of capitalism and the creation of the world order that we have now. In fact, Williams went as far as to say in the book that the only reason slavery stopped existing, the only reason for abolition, is because the form of economics that slavery had produced surpassed the amount of profitability that um, the old form, slavery, the old form of production had been able to match. So um, once things got industrialized, they kind of kicked the ladder out from under them. And so that's the only reason why these economic shifts that slavery got abolished. And it wasn't, you know, heroic abolitionists or conscientious Quakers or morally moved politicians. It was just the kind of crude realities of profit. And so Williams was attacking something very central to how people thought about the world. But I think, you know, the balance of evidence um, since then supports what Williams was saying in the broad strokes. Um, so for a variety of political reasons, slavery and the colonialism that was sustainable because of slavery is fairly difficult to detach either from the development of the modern political system or from the kinds of profit and kinds of institutional changes that are largely responsible for the industrial revolution, thus for capitalism. So I think, you know, I think Williams was right. I want to, I want to talk now about the next thinker, um, Cedric Robinson and, and his work, Black Marxism. When I picked up Black Marxism, I, I expected something a little bit different. Robinson is not, doesn't seem like he's arguing for Marxism in the book. In fact, he's critical of Marxists. I'd love it if you could talk a little bit more about his thesis in Black Marxism and, and how it's different from, from Williams's thesis. Yeah, and Black Marxism is a deep book. It's one of those books that you can read 20 times and still not feel that you really understand. Yeah. There, there, there are books like that. Black Marxism is one of them. Um, an interesting thing that I've been told by people who know more than I do is that Black Marxism isn't even the title that he, that title was affixed by a publisher. And that makes a lot of sense given what you just said, right? It's not what you would expect having seen the title Black Marxism. That's not what you find when you open the pages and check out what he said. Um, but there are a lot of things that Cedric Robinson is doing in that book. I think there are two that make sense to me as kind of central points of what he wanted people to get out of the book. One is a detailed and important criticism of kind of standard Marxian or Marxist ways of explaining the development of capitalism and how capitalism works. And that's tied directly 
to the other side of the coin, which is an alternative idea of how capitalism works, which is often called racial capitalism or the theory of racial capitalism. Um, so he criticizes various aspects of Eurocentrism in the development of Marxist thought. They don't pay attention to the kinds of social structures and kinds of ways of managing social structures that came attached to capitalism as a social project or in more cases to the European colonial domination that preceded capitalism. Right. So one point is just about how we understand capitalism and social control broadly. And racial capitalism is the name he uses to talk about the different analysis that he offers in the book. And the second major point the book makes is about what he calls the black radical tradition. And it's connected to the first point because the fact that we haven't seen or talked about or acknowledged a black radical tradition, he seems to think has to do with the fact that, you know, we only have this one Eurocentric way of understanding total political opposition to the system of social relations that capitalism represents. And that was fight of the proletariat in the class struggle um, against the capitalist system and the capitalists that run it, right? But focusing on a different axis of struggle, or perhaps not a different axis of struggle, but a different part of struggle against that total field of social relations, um, the struggle often waged by Black people, in particular the descendants of those enslaved in the construction of this world, leads you to a different way of thinking about that struggle against this whole system of social relations. Um, and that's the Black radical tradition. And it's informed not just by a criticism of the forms of injustice and unfreedom that came with capitalism and European colonial conquest, but the form that that resistance took also had cultural connections to African politics that were sustained even in the face of the slave ships, even in the face of the Middle Passage, and even in the face of the horrific moral crimes of racial slavery. And so it's not just a criticism, certainly not just a criticism on the terms that you know, Eurocentric thinkers might understand a criticism of that order on, but it's inflected by African politics and spiritualities and ways of thinking about the world. I'm wondering what understanding racial capitalism, the term racial capitalism, means for, for activists today. You know, recently the NBA shut down um, because the players went on, went on strike in the wake of, of a, yet another police shooting of an unarmed black man. And a lot of what we've been hearing is, you know, what's the ask? What do we do now? And I'm wondering how understanding the concept of racial capitalism is a tool for activists. Yeah. So a few things. I guess the first thing I would say is that the idea of racial capitalism says that racism and capitalism are linked. They're not just linked by accident. They're not just linked by convention, but they're functionally linked. And by that, I just mean they work to sustain each other, 
And so it's not just that, you know, they happen to show up hand in hand, um, but injuring the system of racism injures the system of capitalism and vice versa. Um, And I use the term injury because I think it's, you know, a little better suited to the way that we're going to need to think about these things from the perspective of activism, from the perspective of trying to make changes in the world, right? Systems are often too big to finish off all at once. And all I'm trying to ward off there are people say, well, if we fix this thing, we're still going to have a problem because this other thing is going to change in response. Or if we fix the second thing, then we're still going to have a problem because this third thing is going to change in response. That's always going to be true. It doesn't matter what topic you pick. It doesn't matter what political struggle you pick. The struggle for justice is always going to be a larger struggle than any one particular struggle against one particular injustice. But what we can get out of racial capitalism and what we can get out of thinking about racism and capitalism as things that are mutually supporting is things that sustain each other is thinking about things like the NBA strike as something that is anti-capitalist. And I think we can understand why it's anti-capitalist, even though they're protesting against something that seems obviously racist, but doesn't necessarily seem obviously capitalist. If we understand what the functional relationship is between racism and capitalism, And I think one of the best theorists who think about this point is Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who is uh, a a geographer um, and also an abolitionist, a prison abolitionist, which has a lot to do with how we should be thinking about the links here. And she wrote a book called Golden Gulag, where she talks about the development of mass incarceration in California. And as she explains things, the racism is, and this is a mouthful, so I'm gonna say her definition, I'm gonna do my best to try and say what it means, but I'm just gonna quote, what she says racism is, is the state-sanctioned or extra-legal production and exploitation of group-differentiated vulnerability to premature death. There's a lot happening in there, but I think the key parts or key parts among them are group differentiated vulnerability. Some people are more vulnerable to premature death than other people. And the fact that some people are more vulnerable to premature death than other people is a fact that is produced by our social system. And it's a fact that's also exploited by our social system and the production exploitation of that fact. That's what she says racism is. So, In a sense, it's just true the thing that people sometimes say, which is uh, race is a tool that the ruling class uses to divide the working class, right? I think it would be a mistake to think that that's all it is, but that's certainly one way that differences in vulnerability get exploited. W.E.B. Du Bois talks about it Um, using the term psychological wages to describe why it is that white workers don't band together with black workers in some cases to um, fight a common fight against capitalist exploitation, right? That's one way that racism exploits group differentiated vulnerability 
in order to keep the capitalist system running. Sorry, although for me, that just means that white workers, they may not see a, a gain in real wages, but that there are, there are benefits, there are privileges to being white. Exactly. Yeah, there are, he, he, there are psychological benefits, um, Du Bois says, to not being the lowest rung on the ladder. And to and not just to not being the lowest rung on the ladder, but the security of knowing that you never will be. I think that part is also key. Mm -hmm. And so it does something for the ruling class, for the people who don't want the white workers to be in a more powerful union than they are currently in. It does something to be able to stoke those kinds of divisions and to keep them going. What's also point, what you can also figure out by staring at that kind of example is that that's a way to pay people without paying. One thing you could do when white workers are suffering, one thing they might ask you for, they might demand for, they might strike for, is a better system for them and their children. And if you're a member of the ruling class, that's something you don't want because you're going to have to come out of pocket for that. But, in, but if you can give them these psycho, psychological wages, if you can pay them psychological wages, and if you can do that not by fixing their roads or releasing their children from drafts for imperialist wars, but if you can do that by showing them violence directed towards people below them, if you can compensate them in the fiction of dignity by making the people below them in the racial hierarchy less secure, that might be cost-effective. And at different points in history, it's turned out to be. And that's been something that characterizes government policy on policing pretty generally. So policing protects property, but it also does this weird translation of the insecurity of over-policed poor people, especially people of color. It turns that, it converts that into gain for other people. It's a system of exploitation of differences in group vulnerability. I'm reading a book um, called Black-Minded right now, and it's about the political and economic philosophy of Malcolm X. And Malcolm X is describing at one point the role of the police in Harlem. And he says that the police are there not to protect um, the citizens of Harlem, but in fact, to protect the property of people who don't even live in Harlem. And that right. Harlem is an occupied a police state. Um, it's an occupied police state. And the police are an occupying army in a way that the French army was occupying force in Algeria. So I'm not sure that, that I'm not sure what I think about that. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that there are differences between outsiders coming in with an army and telling you what to do on the basis of having an army there and the position of black Americans as Malcolm X's 
describing it. Um, but the question is, you know, what, what difference does that make, right? Is it different in the sense that um, it's hard to tell that the situation is colonial? In the case of Black Americans, when it's easy to tell in other situations, or is the difference more substantive than that? I mean, me, I'm on Malcolm's side of this. Um, I think working class Black and brown people are, um, but especially um, unmistakably working class um, African Americans are a domestic colony. I think all of the political aspects of the colony metropole relationship, as you might see it written somewhere, you read up about this. I think all the political conditions are there. Um, largely, the people that live in those communities are not the owners of the land or resources they live on or near. Um, affairs in those communities are directed from outside. And the fact that those communities exist is used as a base and basis for systematic, ongoing, and continued processes of exploitation and expropriation. Um, if you asked me to tell you what a colony was, I would just repeat that same list of things, yeah. right? So, yeah. No, I think that sounds right. I guess, I guess what I was thinking is, and I think, you know, he sort of struggles with this in his life. Well, if Black people, Black Americans are colonized, then, then again, what do you do? Do you, do you try to leave the country and, and maybe go back to Africa? Do you seek help from the United Nations because there's an occupying army in your community? Do you seek to become full citizens in the United States if you've been denied full citizenship? So I don't know. I guess I, I was thinking maybe that's, those are the consequences of whether or not it's a colony or not. But I, but I don't know. I think what you do is you demand community control. Mm -hmm. And you try to get community control. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm part of an organization that is working towards this in the U.S. called Pan-African Community Action. And that organization has this line, right? The domestic colonialism thesis that Black Americans are um, colonized peoples. Um, and they have colonized people's problems. And so the solution to their problems are self-determination, are things that would build self-determination in much of the way that um, the formerly colonized nations explained their kind of guiding ethos or guiding value um, and forced the United Nations to um, accept that political perspective. Um, I think that's the right perspective for this struggle also. Um, and so community control over police would look like a civilian control board over the departments and resources that are now associated with police departments. Communities could decide what they wanted to do with that department and resources. They could liquidate them entirely if their 
you know, the more straightforward kind of abolitionists. They could hire social workers and present a new trading protocol and decide to handle things that way. Um, there are important questions about what decisions they should make. But right now, the more basic political question is whose call is it to decide how public safety or even the appearance of public safety is pursued in um, working class black communities. It's not theirs, it's someone else's. And until it's theirs, as long as that choice um, resides with the colonizers, then they're going to face colonized people's problems. They're gonna face indiscriminate violence. They're going to face exploitation. They're gonna face expropriation. Yeah, finally, I want to go back to something you, did, you talked about a, uh, a little bit earlier, and you were saying that, you know, anti-racism is, is anti-capitalism, and anti-capitalism is anti-racism, if you, if you agree with, with William's thesis. And what I think is uh, exciting about that, I, you know, I hadn't heard it articulated like that, but what I think is exciting about that is it sort of knocks down this... <laughs> this wall between people who are like, you know, economic determinists and people who, um, you know, who call themselves anti-racist. It, it's actually kind of a silly fight because um, when you're, when you're doing one or when you're pursuing one, you're, you're pursuing, you're pursuing the other. And also that there is no, yeah, like there is no good form. There's no anti-racist form of capitalism. And if you're doing real anti-racist work, you're you're actually rejecting any kind of capitalism, even a kind of capitalism which looks like a social democracy. Is that right? I think that's right. Um, I think we have to be careful about you know what kind of hypotheticals we think about. So definitely true, I would say, is that if there's a form of capitalism that isn't racist, we haven't seen it yet, right? What's also definitely true is that racism in the world as it stands now and capitalism are functionally related. They help each other out. Now, like, could you sit down at a book and write a sci-fi novel and design a system of capitalism that wasn't racist or a system of racism that, you know, was feudalist or something else? Yeah, probably. But the question isn't about that kind of hypothetical. The question is, in the world now, where the police are an occupying army in Black communities, and where the fact that they are an occupying army contributes to much larger and much broader systems of exploitation, which are tied up to capitalism, is that fight anti-capitalist? Yeah. And the same thing from the anti-racist direction. In a world where there is not just prisons, but a prison industrial complex, where locking people up is a multi-billion dollar industry, is there any sensible version of trying to combat racism that doesn't directly contradict and challenge the interests of the richest people in our society. And since the US is a very rich country, we're also talking about the richest people in the world. That also makes no sense. 
So it's not that in any hypothetical world, the anti-racist and anti-capitalist struggle would be the same. But in this one, the anti-racist struggle and the anti-capitalist struggle are the same. Yeah, I'm wondering if there are some books that you would you would direct people to, but particularly young people and educators to, to better understand the current situation. As I mentioned before, uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore is one of the best living theorists who thinks about these questions. And her book, Golden Gulag, I would recommend to anyone thinking about any aspect of racism or capitalism, particularly in the United States. Um, it's, yeah, I, I can't say enough positively about that book. I'd also recommend Eric Williams's book, of course, Capitalism and Slavery, um, for thinking about how these things fit together. I would also recommend the book Racecraft uh, by Barbara Jean Fields and Karen Fields. They have a perspective on what race has to do with the larger system that I think is you know, just as sophisticated as anybody. They're, they belong on the list with um, Ruth Wilson Gilmore, I think. But they, that book in particular is about challenging a lot of the ways that we're used to thinking about what race is and how it works. And I think some of the traps that get us to avoid making the obvious connections like we were just talking about, right? If, if the prison industry is a multi-billion dollar industry, then how can we talk about anti-racism in a way that doesn't talk about financial interests and the system that enables financial interests to structure the rest of the world? Um, I would just, I mean, that's a, that's a fantastic, I mean, that's a great list. And that the last book is, I think, a fantastic book, Racecraft. And as you were talking about Golden Gulag and you were talking about her definition of, of what racism is and about vulnerable populations, you know, one of the things that the authors of Racecraft point out is, you know, it's not, I've been thinking about this a lot during the COVID crisis. It's not, when newspaper articles say, you know, black people in the South Bronx have much higher rates of asthma because they're black. You know, one of the points that she points out is no, it's not because they're black. It's because, because of racism. So it's not because of their race, but because of, of racism, because that's where the Cross Bronx Expressway is. And that's where the um, sanitation plants are. And that's why kids are getting sick. Black kids are getting sick. And I'm thinking about it a lot as I read the Times, the Times is always saying, you know, X number of black people died of COVID because black people are more susceptible to COVID. And yes, that's true, but that's not because they're black, but it's because, because of racism. And I think that that's a point that they make again and again in the book. That's a very powerful point and it seems obvious, but it's not often obvious to us. Yeah, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm, I'm thinking about. Yeah, it, it seems obvious when someone says it, but it's because people don't say it and we don't get in the habit of, you know, thinking about why is it that black people are more susceptible to these things? Is it intrinsic to being black or is it because of specific ways that black people have been treated and specific decisions that have been used to exploit black people? Um, we mystify things that aren't mystical at all, that aren't magical. And it's that point that makes me think of the, the last book that I would want to recommend, uh, which is by Adam Gitachu called World Making After Empire. 
and I recommend that book for a few reasons. Uh, one, because, you know, I think in the U.S. we're not encouraged and not given a lot of opportunities to learn about other parts of the world. And her book takes a global perspective, focusing in particular on activists from Africa and the Caribbean, but not exclusively. And I think that's a good thing for people to spend some time thinking about. But also because the point of the book is that back in the 60s and 70s, when the people who were fighting actual colonialism, it wasn't that long ago, right? But like formal colonialism, the British Empire, the Portuguese Empire, the French Empire, the people who were fighting for national liberation in those anti-colonial struggles and fighting for racial justice globally weren't thinking about fighting ideas, right? They weren't mm-hmm. thinking about fighting what people believed. They were trying to build an actual world that meant different understandings of things, of course, but it also meant stuff. It meant building bridges. It meant building hospitals. It was a very literal struggle to decide what the world economic system was going to be look like, what its rules were going to be, um, and not just what people pay attention to or what they celebrate. And I think, you know, that's something that will help us answer the question that people had about the NBA players striking, which is what's next. (laughs) Thank you.